one person wakes up on the wrong side of the bed, we all know it pretty quickly, and unless it's me, because I just stay quiet and hide, but most everybody else in my house that does that, it's, you know it, and what tends to happen is that one person's bad morning and negativity starts quickly to kind of spread, and the next thing you know, the second person's frustrated, or the third person. Another time that happens for us is when we all get in our minivan and drive anywhere longer than 15 minutes. One person starts fussing, and before we know it, four people are fussing, and daddy's pulling over the van, you know. Positivity is contagious, and negativity is contagious. And the more I talk to just people in our church and other places, I see that we all have struggles, and we all have issues, and it might be that this family's dealing with sickness, and this family's dealing with a job situation, this family's dealing with financial situation, this family's dealing with, with who knows what, right? And, or just somebody that everything's okay, but I'm just busy, 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 right? And so, especially now as we get to December, Christmas season, holiday season, we're busy, we're tired, things are going on, and so we need some positive encouragement. And I don't mean like worldly hooray encouragement. I mean from the word of God encouragement, from the church encouragement. And the believers in the city of Thessalonica needed this as well. These were new believers, and these were believers who had been through persecution already in their faith and surrounded by pagan ideologies and beliefs. And they certainly felt isolated and again, persecuted, and maybe even alone, and they had questions about their faith. Paul had only spent a few weeks there to teach them the Word of God, and as we all know, we've, some of us have studied the Bible for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and there's still stuff we are still learning, right? And so these believers needed some godly encouragement, and in this letter we've been studying, the Apostle Paul gives them that, and we come today to chapter 5, and we read some more encouragement. If you found chapter 5, verse 1, let me know by saying word. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation." These next two verses are my favorite two verses in Thessalonians. 
For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort one another, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also you do. Have four points to give us this morning from these 11 verses, and we'll dive right into them. The first point is this, the day of the Lord, spoken of here in verse 2, the day of the Lord refers to a time of, of future judgment. Number one, the day of the Lord refers to a time of future judgment. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we, we did the latter part of chapter 4. And if you look back at chapter 4, verse 13, Paul wrote and said, I would not have you, brethren, to be ignorant or uninformed about something. And that thing we talked about two weeks ago was the believers in Thessalonica had this concern that believers who die before Christ returns would somehow miss out on the blessings of that return. And they were, the word ignorance used here, they were uninformed about that. And so it's not, again, not a surprise because Paul did not spend much time with them. He couldn't, of course, teach them everything. And so he writes and teaches them, as we saw two weeks ago, that when Christ returns, there'll be a loud return, the voice, the shout, the cry. There will be the dead in Christ rise first, and then believers go up with him, go up after that. And he, so he, give, he gave them this brief teaching in chapter 4 to say, those believers who died in Christ will not miss the return of Christ or the blessings of that return. They will be fully a part of it. But now we come to chapter 5, and instead of him saying, you're ignorant about something, he actually says uh, the opposite here. Verse 1, he says, but of the times and seasons, brethren, he says, you have no need that I write unto you. So now as he continues here there's something here that they actually do know about and maybe not fully and completely but he says here I have no need to write you, you you've got this part and so what part is he talking about well he says first he says there's times and seasons I think he's referring here to events and seasons of life that may be going on before the return of Christ before the judgment of Christ these different words here are used in other parts of Scripture as well. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read to you Acts chapter 1, where Jesus said to the disciples, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Just as Jesus' disciples wanted to know more about the signs of the times, the, what's going to be going on when, when you return, Jesus says it's not for you to know that those times. But then Paul comes back and says in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, you know, I've given you some thoughts on this. I've given you some teaching on this. You have no need that I write to you on this. And then he says in verse 2, you know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. And so our title of the sermon this morning is the day of the Lord from verse 2. Again, I told you this day of the Lord is a time of future judgment. And so notice that last time we met in chapter 4, the emphasis was on believers 
being risen, and believers seeing the Lord. And now chapter 5 is an emphasis on, it's a negative emphasis. It's an emphasis on unbelievers being judged. He comes as a thief in the night. Let me give you a few other uses of the word day of the Lord. By the way, the day of the Lord is used throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, always speaking, mostly speaking to a time of coming judgment. In Acts 2.20, it says, The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. 2 Thessalonians 2.2, That you may not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with its intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. He speaks to this second coming, but not in a way that's good for unbelievers, right? In a way that is a day of judgment. It is a it is a day of war. It's a warning. And that leads me to my second thing, that the day of the Lord will be unexpected. He says the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. As we think about the day of the Lord, there's so many things that are hard to understand. And um, there's a, a word that we use, and the word is eschatology, which means the study of last things, the final things. It's a most of you might think of it as an end times study. And um, one question in a million eschatology questions is, when will Christ return? And we've been having that discussion amongst some of us in the church, and it's a very um, interesting topic. And I've actually spoken with a few pastors in the last few weeks, and they're all experiencing similar things that we are in our church, discussions about the end times, because... I think it's related to the Israel-Hamas Middle East stuff. And I started doing some research, and I went back five years, and something happened somewhere in the world, and there was an influx of uh, books sold on the end times. I looked back ten years, something happened, an influx of books sold on the end times. And so it's a common thing for world events to happen that causes a revitalization amongst people when it comes to wanting to know more about the end times. And um, that's, again, it's a common thing. Um, and it's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing, right, if it causes us to dive into the Word and study the Word. and that's a, that's a good thing. I've also seen how, and this is just fact, some writers, book writers, Hollywood writers, have become millionaires off of people's desire to know the details of the end times. Which I guess, I guess they, need, they can do what they need to do. I will confess this morning that there's a lot to study when it comes to this, and this is not the place to do it you know, before us this morning. But I want you to know that if you have a desire to dive into God's Word and study any topic, that's a good desire. And you should do that and... and We'll try to cover things as we can as we go through the texts. But the thing I want you to see in chapter 5 and in 1 Thessalonians is that every true Bible believer agrees with two things. Number one, Christ will return. And number two, 
we don't know when it's going to happen. We all agree on that, right? He's going to return, and we don't know when it's going to happen. He says in verse 2, he will come like a thief in the night. So look at verse 3. People are going to be saying peace and safety. Like everything's fine. Everything's good. And then sudden destruction will come upon them. By the way, when he says them here, he's speaking to are about unbelievers. Not believers. Unbelievers. Unbelievers won't be looking for the return of Christ, right? We who are believers look for that and long for that. Unbelievers, them, Paul says, they're not looking for it. And they're just living their lives. And they're even going to be saying, everything's fine. We're all good. Although they're living in sin and just devolving in sin. Then the return of Christ will happen. So that's my third point. The day of the Lord is condemnation for unbelievers. The day of the Lord is condemnation for unbelievers. And he says in verse 3, it is coming suddenly upon them as birth pains upon a woman with child. We've had a lot of ladies give birth recently, and it's this idea of you go through nine months or so, and there's all, I mean, I don't know what all goes on, but there's a lot of pains and struggles through those nine months, right? But typically at the end of that, I've been in those rooms where you're watching the little uh, chart, and Jesse's like, here comes another, here comes more pain, here it comes. It's the idea here that it will be, the return of Christ to condemn unbelievers will be, it is inevitable and unexpected. As a matter of fact, Jesus used the same language in Matthew 24 when he said it will, be the, the, it will be the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of labor pains. Someone took the use of the word day of the Lord and how it is sudden and painful and made a little paragraph, and I want to read it to you. Everything I'm about to read to you are direct quotes from mostly the Old Testament and maybe a couple of New Testament. But when we think about the return of Christ as the condemnation for unbelievers, listen to this. It will be coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate sinners. It will be a day of vengeance so as to avenge himself on his foes, a slaughter for the Lord God of hosts. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. It will be near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Joel says it is near, great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Joel calls it a great and awesome day, not in a positive light, by the way, as in awful. It will be near the valley of decision. It will be darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it. A day when your dealings will return on your own head. Zephaniah, near and coming very quickly. A bitter day, a day of trouble, a day of distress, a day of destruction, a day of desolation, darkness, gloom, clouds, and darkness. Zephaniah goes on and says, The day of the Lord's wrath and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end. Indeed, a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Zephaniah 2, it will be the day of the Lord's anger. Malachi says, he's coming, like a, it's like a refiner's fire. He says it's a great and terrible day. And it reminds you of what Thessalonians says. He comes as a thief in 
the night. The day of the Lord is a day of condemnation for unbelievers. So, let me say here, right? I pray everyone in this room has trusted Christ. Right? That we believe in Him. The one we've sang about, the one we've heard about from the children's sermon, the one we were reading about in Scripture, that we might know Christ and experience glory and not the gloom of the day of the Lord. Look at verse 4. Again, condemnation, the day of the Lord for unbelievers. Then he says in verse 4, but you, you are not in darkness. You are not like them. You are believers. So that day should, will not overtake you as a thief. I love this usage we see in the scripture of darkness versus light, right? Of dark and light. And light typically refers to God, God's people, the things of God. Darkness refers to evil. Um, as a matter of fact, I was trying to think of a few of these verses. There, there are many, but Jesus said, the church, we're, we're the light of the world, right? The light of the world. Spurgeon says, uh, I'll, quote, I'll quote Spurgeon here. He says, to you who know Christ, the, the return of the Lord will come as at daytime. You cannot know the hour, but you must know it's coming. And it will come to your joy because you are the light. In, John, in 1 John 1, he says, If we say we have fellowship with Christ, or God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The idea here is that we who are in the light, in Christ, walking with Him, following Him, loving Him, serving Him, we expect the, the day of the Lord, and we see that it, it will come for our good. Verse 5. Again, you are all children of the light. And he, when he says all, he doesn't mean everybody. He means all who are in the church, all who are believers, who trust Christ. You're the children of the light and children of the day. We're not of the night and not of darkness. Again, I, I won't read all these verses to you, but so many texts tell us we are the light. Let your light shine before men, Jesus said. John said, if we habitually walk in the darkness, we walk in sin. But we are to walk in the light. Peter wrote and said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You believers are a people for God's own possessions. To do what? Peter said that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Ephesians, Paul writes, you were formerly in darkness, but now you're, you walk in the light of the Lord. In Colossians, he said the Lord has brought given you an inheritance of the saints in light and rescued you from the domain of darkness on and on and on we see that those who are in christ will not be overtaken by the day of the lord so verse six therefore because of this because you are the children of light because you walk in truth and righteousness and faith in God, because of those things, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober. Sober. The word here that I want to focus on for a moment is to stay awake. Let us keep awake. It's this idea of someone, and do y'all know how it is? Some, some people are morning people. I don't know how y'all exist, but some of us, we wake up and we're like, oh, I need a minute, right? 
I just need a minute to, to get going. That's the idea here of someone laying in bed, kind of rousing themselves up. All right, got to get up. Let's get up and go, right? That's that word there. It, it's this idea of staying awake, staying alert, right? He mentions to be sober here. And this, he, obviously this is uh, an example of, of drunkenness, but the idea is that your mind is clear and not clouded. You're awake and you're alert. And we see it again throughout Scripture. Jesus used the same word when he said, he said, be on alert in Matthew 24, for you do not know when the day of the Lord is coming. And he used it again in chapter 25 of Matthew when he says, be on alert, for then, for you do not know the day or the hour. How about this usage of the word? In the Garden of, Gethsem uh, Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying and the disciples pray with him. Remember that? He goes off to pray, he comes back, what are they doing? They're sleeping. And he uses the same word and he says, oh, alert yourself, awake yourself, stay awake. Pay attention. But in Matthew, it is a use of warning. And in the Gethsemane experience, it is an example of, of warning as well. Therefore, believers, and by the way, this is our application for the sermon, we're not to ignore the truth that Christ will return. And we're to be alert and sober-minded and Look at verse 7, for they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken, be drunken in the night. But that's not us. We are in the light, and we're to live that way. But how many times do we as believers, though we know Christ, though we know his word, though we love his church, how many times do we maybe get off the right path and fall into sin or ignore God's word or things of God? And how many times do we step off into the darkness when we should be walking in the light? And that's why we need the word and prayer and the church, right, to guide us back. That I might show up here one day on a Wednesday night and maybe for some reason I've stepped off into the darkness and I talk to uh, Nick and he encourages me and I say, you know what, I'm leaving here back in the light. I'm leaving here my eyes where they need to be, back on Christ. That we, that we need that. That's us. Therefore, those who walk in the light, or to watch and be sober, clear-minded. Last night at about 9 o'clock, Andrew called and said he had car trouble. And he was probably eight miles from me. So I uh, jump in the car, start riding down the road. It's a back road, but it's a road I'm very familiar with. And I'm going probably 55 to 60 miles an hour. Um, and it's a hilly road and a uh, curvy road, but I'm very familiar with it. It was foggy. Have y'all had fog last couple of nights? Bad foggy. And true story, I'm driving down the road 55, 60 miles an hour, literally thinking about this sermon. I'm, the radio's off, my phone's to the side, two hands on the wheel, thinking about, I was actually thinking about this introduction to this sermon. I'm riding down the road, and, I, and it, with all that fog, I couldn't see very good, right? Out of nowhere, I see an orange hoodie on a guy, late teens, early 20s. And he wasn't in the middle of the road. He was in the middle of my lane. And I'm, I feel like it was from here to Kendall or less. I mean, it was this close. And I'm doing I'm 55, 60, probably 60. And I don't know about y'all, this is this, this crazy. I was, my dad taught me a long time ago, don't swerve. 
if you swerved. So thankfully, I, did, I, did, I usually have the radio crank. I didn't have the radio on. Thankfully, I didn't have my, my phone was not a distraction. Thankfully, I was alert and was able just to take my foot off the accelerator and touch the brake. And no joke, this kid, it was like he's holding his phone. It's got headphones hooked to it, walking down the highway. I'm talking about where there's hills, curves, fog, headphones, phone. We make eye contact like a deer in the headlights look. And this kid takes one step and dives like a movie off into the ditch. And I, I slowed down, and I, I wanted to go back and just pull over and yell at him for a while, but I just went on. On the way back, he was still on the side of the road walking, but on the way back, he was on the side. I honked at him. But I bring that to your attention because, oh, I'm going to be honest, what happens if I'm looking at my phone right there or I'm turning the radio you know what I mean? What happens if I'm not alert in that moment? He's, he's going to miss the, well, he won't miss it, but I would have hit him. I mean, it would have been terrible for him, obviously, and terrible for me. So I'm using that to say this, my alertness in that moment, and I'm not always alert as I should be. I'm thankful for it last night because it was, it was scary. The point, uh, the reason I share that is as believers, this might sound corny, but we're driving down a road like that. Hills, curves, um, fog, that's our life. You never know what's coming around the corner, right? And as we do it, we're to do it clear-minded. Watching. Verse 8. Again, he uses the word sober. Then he says, we put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. That we have those three things that we all desperately need so great in our lives. Faith in Christ, love for God, and hope in a future. You think about, I read verse 8, I think about these Roman soldiers that would have wore the breastplates and the helmets, right? You definitely need to protect your heart. You need to protect your head, of course, with a helmet. But for us as Christians, faith, hope, and love are a part of the armor we need to walk in the way we need to walk. And so there's this alertness that we have, and it's also, in a, we expect Christ to return. But these two things work together. And we don't let one take away the other, right? We expect him to return, but we don't just go sit at home waiting, right? We serve the Lord in the time we have left. The disciples almost got this wrong in the book of Acts. You remember when Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1? The disciples watch him, and I can't imagine what that's like. The glorified Christ, after the resurrection, ascends to heaven, and the disciples are watching. And I think they thought he was about to come right back. Or I guess, they're, like, they're just waiting. And what's the voice from heaven say? I'll read it to you. It says, two men stood by them in white robes and said, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking up, taken up from you will come again in the same way. And so there's this balance for Christian living 
where we keep our eyes on the future knowing he will return. But in the meanwhile, we live for him as best we can, alertly and in the light. Now we come to my favorite two verses. Verses 9 and 10. My final point. The day of the Lord will be salvation for believers. When Christ returns, all those who are in him will have a consummation of a forever, an eternity with him. We're in Sunday school, we're talking about this. What will it be like when we go to be with the Lord forever? And we all kind of confess, we don't really know for sure. I mean, a lot of scripture tells us some things here or there, but, but I'm kind of glad about that because I think heaven's going to be so much better than we can ever even imagine. So why not have a little surprise to it? Why not have a little bit of, I don't know, but it's going to be amazing, right? It's going to be way better than your best day here will not even compare with any day there. So verse 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath. Now, I told you, the day of the Lord will be condemnation, damnation for unbelievers, but for us who are in Christ, it says in verse 9, He has not destined us for wrath. So what is God's wrath? God's wrath is His holy hatred towards sin, and it is right for God to hate sin, right? He has to hate sin. It is His nature. He is holy and perfect and righteous and just, so God sees sin, he must hate sin. He must. And one day, all those who reject Christ in this life will experience the full wrath of God poured out on them forever. And so as much as we say heaven for the believer is the greatest thing ever imaginable, we can also say for the unbeliever, hell is the most terrifying thing imaginable. But verse 9, he says, we who are in Christ, we're not destined for this. It is not who we are. Not because of us, not because of who we are, but look at verse 9 again. I'm sorry, verse, ten, we've, yeah, verse 9. But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. This is the basic truth of the Christian faith, isn't it? Jesus died for us. The gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. We sing songs here sometimes. One song says, all my sin for his grace, what a glorious exchange. We sang a song this morning that says, all I have is Christ. If you have some time later, go on YouTube and Google or YouTube and do all I have is Christ video. And it's, a, it's like a cartoon type video. It's very well done. And it shows this person who's lost in their sin and he walks up and kneels in front of the cross basically and you see this fire from heaven come down and the fire is aiming right for this man just to burn him up and the fire instead hits the cross and completely every ounce of fire is absorbed into that cross and this this idea that Christ took the wrath of God in our place as Paul said God made him who knew no sin become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. No matter what circumstances come about in my life or in your life, no matter if Christ returns before we eat this meal, 
or 10,000 years from now, no matter any of those things, if you are in Christ, you are not destined for God's wrath, but you will experience God's favor forever. So verse 11, he says, you've heard these things, encourage one another with these words, edify, lift up. Look to the future, but live in the present. And so my final thought for us this morning, you've heard the saying that you should treat every day as if it's your last because one of these days you're going to be right. And that is just truth. If, if I've learned anything in 42 years of life, that's true. We don't know what every day is going to bring. My encouragement for us, church, as we try to do verse 11, comfort each other, lift up each other, edify one another. My encouragement is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If we wake up every day and say, today, Lord, help me to love you. With everything I say, everything I do, how I treat my wife, how I treat my kids, how I treat my parents, how I go to work, the decisions I make in life, Lord, help me to love you in everything I do. If we can wake up and say, Lord, I don't know what the day's going to bring, but help me to, to love the people you've put around me. If we can wake up every day and say, Lord, give me a heart of gratitude for the things you have given me. Instead of waking up saying, I don't have this, I don't have this, that we might wake up and say, Lord, thank you for what we do have. That we might wake up and say, Lord, you know that person in my life who needs to hear the gospel. Give me the opportunity today to present the gospel to them. Lord, you know the thing I've been putting off doing I need to do in my life. Lord, help me to get that done now because my days are numbered. And I'll conclude with this. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've been thinking about it, maybe God's beginning to work in your heart. The scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust Christ. Unbeliever, trust Christ. Believer, live for him. Let's pray.